dismiss our children at this time to Children's Church, and uh, the rest of us will take our Bibles and we'll go to Genesis chapter number 13, Genesis chapter number 13, um, in our Bibles this morning, Genesis 13. My question for you this morning is, what do you treasure? What, what do you value? I think one thing we can learn in our lives is often the things that we say that we value and the things that we actually value are not always the same. Uh, we see that often in our, in our world. We see that in our politics, right, where people can be talking about, well, we believe in this, but then their actions show that they believe in something else, right? We, we, we see that gap between our stated values and our actual values. And here's something we need to remember, right? What we value most will determine what we do. We do what we do because we value what we value. And so people will say, well, I really think that, you know, worshiping and following Jesus is important until something more important comes along. Uh, I believe that God is the greatest treasure until some other treasure captivates our heart. In this passage today, we're going to see Abram and Lot as they go separate directions. And really what this reveals about Abraham and Lot, or Abram as he's still known as at this point in his life, is that they have a different set of value systems, right? They have two competing value systems of what is important to them. You see, what we value and what we trust and what we treasure only comes out in testing, right? It only comes out when the going is tough. Uh, You can say, man, family is really important until it's really inconvenient, right? Man, my my church is gathering with God's people is super important with me until it's maybe not as easy as it once was. We have these things we say matter to us, but when it becomes difficult, then we find out what really actually matters to us. In this text, we'll see Abraham's values revealed through a series of what I'm going to call crises. Okay, When I say crisis, I mean a crisis is a moment of decision, right? That's what a crisis, literally what the word means in Greek. A moment of decision where you go one way or another, and if you go the wrong way, it could be disastrous, right? That's what a crisis is. This, this chapter presents a series of crises, a series of, of, of tests that reveal to us what Abram's values were. And that call you and me to have the same values that Abram had. So follow along. We'll read through the entire chapter and then we'll walk through it together. Genesis 13, beginning in verse 1. And Abram went up out of Egypt, he and his wife and all that he had, and Lot with him. Into the south, into the Negev, is, the name, is literally the word. There's a place in Israel called the Negev, um, even to this day, the south country. And Abram was very rich in cattle and silver and in gold. And he went on his journeys from the south even to Bethel, unto the place where his tent had been at the beginning between Bethel and Ai, unto the place of the altar which he had made there at the first. And there Abram called on the name of the Lord. And Lot also, which went with Abram, had flocks and herds and tents. And the land was not able to bear them, that they might dwell together, for their substance was great, so that they could not dwell together. And there was a strife between the herdmen of Abram's cattle and the herdmen of Lot's cattle, and the Canaanite and Perizzite dwelled in the land. And Abram said unto Lot, Let there be no strife, I pray thee, between me and thee, and between my herdsmen and thy herdsmen. For we be brothers, we're relatives, we're family. It's not the whole land before thee. Separate thyself, I pray thee, from me. If thou wilt take the left hand, then I will go to the right. And if thou depart to the right hand, I will go to the left. And Lot lifted up his eyes and beheld all the plain of Jordan, all the valley of Jordan. 
that it was well watered everywhere before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. Even as the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt, as thou comest unto Zoar. And Lot chose him all the valley of Jordan. And Lot journeyed east. They separated themselves, the one from the other. Abram dwelled in the land of Canaan. And Lot dwelled in the cities of the plain and pitched his tent toward Sodom. But the men of Sodom were wicked and sinners before the Lord exceedingly. And the Lord said unto Abram after that Lot was separated from him, Lift up now thine eyes. And look from the place where thou art northward, and southward, and eastward, and westward. For all the land which thou seest, to thee will I give it, and to thy seed forever. And I will make thy seed as the dust of the earth, so that if a man can number the dust of the earth, then shall thy seed also be numbered. Arise, walk through the land, and the length of it, and the breadth of it, for I will give it unto thee. And Abram moved his tent, and came and dwelt in the plain of Mamre literally the the, the oaks of Mamre, the trees of Mamre, which is in Hebron, and built there an altar unto the Lord. So we watch Abram as he goes through these crises, and this is really where we see the character of Abram come out. Think about these different leaders. I mentioned the names George Washington, Winston Churchill, FDR. What do they all have in common? Well, here's what they all have in common is they led through crises, Um, there's, there's plenty of other people who have led along the way, but they didn't take the, the nation through a time of crisis. I mean, none of us, very few of us, would be well-versed on the life of, say, uh, James Polk. By the way, he was one of our presidents. We were like, who's that guy? Yeah, he was one of the presidents, but he didn't lead through any crises. We do know about George Washington, however. Few of us would know much about Anthony Eden, but we do all know about Winston Churchill. Here's the difference. One led through a crisis, the other did not. And here we learn about Abram. Very few of us are naming their, our kids after Lot. Okay, Ryan and Michelle named their firstborn Abraham. All right, Abraham's a great figure in the Bible. Nobody's naming their kids Lot. Uh, because they, they go through these crises, they go different directions, they respond differently, and we see the greatness of Abram. We see his faith, we see his values, we see his treasures in how he responds to these crises. You see, true faith is revealed only in testing. A crisis will reveal the stuff that you're made of. It's like when you take the black light and you shine it over stuff and you see kind of what's like, oh man, there's all kinds of stuff I didn't realize was there. That's what difficulty is like. It reveals what's really there. And I know many of us are this morning going through hard times. We've talked about that already in our service. It's a crisis, a time of testing to reveal what your faith is made of, to reveal what you truly treasure. So let's join Abram in this text. Let's walk through these crises with him. God is summoning you and me to treasure him above everything else. So here's the first crisis. The first crisis is what I'm going to call a crisis of commitment. Remember what happened in the previous chapter? Look, verse 1 kind of hints at it. Abram went up out of Egypt, he and his wife and all that he had and lot with him into the south. So the previous chapter, last week, Abram goes off to Egypt in the time of testing. He doesn't do super hot in that particular crisis. He goes down to Egypt. He lies about his wife. He embarrasses himself and even sort of drags God's name through the mud in Egypt. It's not Abram's finest hour, okay, at the end of Genesis chapter 12. But now we see him coming back from that failure. It's interesting how this is worded. Uh, the, 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 before he goes into Egypt, it says he goes from Bethel to the Negev to Egypt. 
Now this goes from Egypt to the Negev to Bethel. So it's like he takes these three steps down and he takes these three steps back. Very deliberate, right? This is what Moses is doing is saying, Abram is retracing his steps. He's returning to the place where he once was. He's going back to Bethel where the altar was at the first. It's a crisis of commitment. It's a crisis that's revealed in his failure. The question is, does he re- is he really committed to Jehovah? Does he really trust God's word? I think many of us, if we failed like Abraham did, we would have been like, I'm going back to Ur, right? How would Abram respond to this failure? Would he slink back to Ur and just go home? Or would he renew his commitment to Jehovah? Would he remain committed to Yahweh? And here's the amazing thing. Abram goes back to the land. Through this test, even though there's failure, he gets back up because his commitment is to Jehovah. His commitment is to Yahweh. It is to God. And so he returns to the land. This entire chapter, I think, is set in contrast to what we saw last week. Back in the previous chapter, we have a failure. This chapter, we see Abraham doing what is right. This contrast between his embarrassing failure and then the stunning sacrifice. The previous chapter, he had kind of thrown his wife to the wolves. Sarai, tell them you're my sister. In this chapter, he willingly sacrifices himself for the greater good of Lot, for the greater good of their unity together. It's just kind of the opposite. They're sort of mirror opposites of how he responds. So here's Abram coming back to the land. Here's Abram coming back in verse 4, renewing his worship to Jehovah. At the end of the chapter, God will reaffirm his promises. I find this incredibly comforting to know that God is a God who welcomes us back when we turn to him. To know that he is a God who restores his wayward children when they return. Okay, he, is the, he is a prodigal God. He's the God pictured in, in Luke 15 that the sun comes from afar off and he runs he embraces any repentant sinner who comes to him in faith. Now, maybe you're, that's you this morning. You're a believer in Jesus, but hey, the last few weeks, maybe even the last few years, you've kind of been hanging out in Egypt. You've been giving into that sin that you always give into, and you're, you're back here at church today. Maybe you've been coming to church every week, but your heart has not been. Today is a great day to return to God. Today is a great day to renew your commitment to him. Now, this is what is astounding to me. Look at, we look down in verse 3. And he went on his journeys from the south, even to Bethel, unto the place where his tent had been at the beginning between Bethel and Ai, unto the place of the altar which he had made there at the first. So, if you go back to chapter 12, just back over a page, look at verse 7. The Lord appeared unto Abram and said unto him, Unto thy seed will I give this land. And there builded he an altar unto the Lord who appeared unto him. And he removed from thence unto a mountain on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent, having Bethel on the west, Ai on the east. And there he builded an altar unto the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. This is pretty sweet. Abram leaves for a while and goes down to Egypt and he comes back and guess what is still there? The altar that he made. Even though he's been gone, even though the Canaanites are in the land, the altar is still there. You see, the altar, the presence of the old altar points to the enduring nature of God's promises. It's almost God's way of saying, Abram, the altar is still there. Guess what? My promises are still there. Even though Abram had temporarily abandoned the land of promise, God had not annulled the promise of the land. Isn't that awesome? That even though you and I at times are unfaithful to God, he is faithful to us. Faithful is he who has called you, who will also do it. Hey, he who has begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus. And listen, there's literally nothing that, you and, I will, that will, you and I will do that can thwart the purposes of God. You're his child. You're, 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 you're his. You're, you're, you're his chosen from eternity. There's nothing you're going to do in time that's going to undo his purposes in eternity. Uh, 
His promises to us are steadfast. Why? Because they're not based on you and me. Our salvation is not based on our performance. It is based on Jesus' performance. It's based on the objective, finished, historic work of Jesus on our behalf. So the promise God gives to Abram, not dependent on Abram, depended on God. So Abram's commitment is put to the test as he comes back to the land. But there's another little test here, this test of commitment. I skipped over verse 2. Abram was very rich in cattle and silver and in gold. So there's, there's this little thing that Hebrew does where it reverses word order to kind of be like, big flashing lights, this is important. Verse 2 is one of those things. Abram's riches, and we read the story. This is important for the later narrative that Abram's got a lot of stuff. By the way, how did he get really rich? It was part of the debacle in Egypt, right? He goes to Egypt, lies about his wife. Pharaoh's like, hey, I'm going to marry your sister, or who he thinks is his sister, gives Abram a bunch of stuff. And so here's Abram now leaving Egypt with all this stuff that he did not deserve, stuff that he had gotten even because of his failure. Um, it's kind of astounding to me, all these sheep that are bleeding, all of these donkeys he has, all of these camels he has. I almost think that whenever Abram looked at them, they were a reminder of his blunder in Egypt. They were a reminder of the sovereign grace of God to him even when he failed. I, I've experienced this. I don't know if you have. But you're not doing super hot spiritually. And you're like, man, God, there's no way God's going to bless me right now. And then God turns around and blesses you anyway. Just a reminder, my blessing does not depend on you. It depends on me, God says to us. His riches, they're a divine blessing. But I think there's also a test. Because we see in the account, Lot, look at verse 5. Lot also which went with Abram had flocks and herds and tents. So you have two really rich guys, Abram and you have Lot. And when they're sort of put to the test, they respond very differently. Lot makes a decision based on how am I going to multiply my material wealth? I'm going to go to the well-watered plains of Jordan. Abram makes a decision based on God's promises. There's an amazing test that comes with stuff. We often think trials mean I lose my job. Uh, you know, my bank account is not looking too good. I'm defaulting on loans. And yes, there is tremendous testing that comes in times of loss. But you realize there's also tremendous testing that comes when we have a lot of stuff. In fact, some would argue that it is a greater test. It is a, a more difficult spiritual challenge to have lots of stuff. Uh, when we have lots of stuff, here's what we begin to do. We begin to trust in the stuff. When the bank account is, man, that's looking great, we begin to think, you know, my needs are taken care of. I don't even need to ask God to give me this day my daily bread because I got it covered for the next several months. You got your emergency fund well-funded, and you've got the Dave Ramsey plan going with the debt snowball, and, man, things are looking good. Your 401K is growing, and you sort of stop Trusting God. You begin to trust your finances. There is a test that comes, a test of your commitment. If you're sitting in this room today, you live in the United States of America. We are living in the most affluent, most wealthy, safest society at any point in human history. You say, well, I'm on kind of the lower end of the, of the spectrum on the wealth. I'm not the richest person in Mobile. You are still in the 1% on the planet we are like in the top upper crust of all of human history and our wealth. And we can begin very easily, and I think it's a very real danger for us, to begin to trust our stuff, to trust our schemes, to trust our plans, rather, rather than God. In fact, God warned Israel of this. Deuteronomy 6, he tells them, you're going to come into the land, you're going to get houses you didn't build, vineyards you didn't plant, fields you didn't grow, and it says, take heed lest you forget your God. There is a very real danger that the more stuff we have, the more we are ready to forget God. And I think that has tragically happened in our society. We don't need God because we've got it all figured out. 
How easy would it have been for Abram to forget God in the midst of his wealth and comfort, to be like, you know what? That Egypt thing actually turned out pretty good for me. I got Sarai back, and I got a bunch of stuff. I'm going to keep trusting my own schemes. This is going well. That is not what he does. How simple would it have been, Abram, to just say, I'm going to sort of follow God in order to get stuff from God, just treat God as a means to an end, and he does not do that. What does he do? He goes back to Bethel, and then verse 4, he went to the place of the altar And he called on the name of the Lord. This is the amazing thing about Abram, going through this test of commitment. His wealth does not get in the way of his worship. Right? His finances do not get in the way of his commitment, of his faithfulness to God. His prosperity does not hinder his piety. It's really an amazing action that he partakes there, because oftentimes the more wealthy we get, the less we worship, the less we focus on God, the less we think that we truly need God. You see, where many would forget God because things are going well, Abram worships God. Abram was able to have wealth without wealth having him. It's only one in a hundred who could truly have all that Abram had and yet not have it spiritually ruin them. So in 1 Timothy 6, Paul warns Timothy, and you can look this up later, where he says, those who desire to be rich ultimately pierce themselves through with many sorrows. The desire to to be rich has sent many people to hell, has probably sent more people to hell than the, 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 the flagrant sins of idolatry and of adultery. The desire to be rich, the desire to have stuff, the great God of materialism. So here's my question. What are your priorities this morning, right? Where, where is your commitment? Is your commitment to building wealth? Is your commitment to getting security and stuff in your bank account, in your 401k, in your insurance policies? By the way, nothing wrong with having those things. But is that what you are trusting this morning? Is that what your commitment is? Are you more committed to your job than you are to Jesus? There are many people who are more concerned with the cares of this life, with riches, with wealth, with all these things, than they are to their walk with Jesus. Here's how I know. When something better comes along, Jesus takes second place, right? Oh, man, if i got to get up early, go to get an extra shift, devotions go today. Or, man, if I get offered to take an overtime shift on Sunday morning, I know I should be worshiping, but the money's just too good to pass up. The priorities are going to come through in this crisis of commitment. Here's the interesting thing about this, this crisis of commitment. On one hand, there's a crisis, a test that comes through his failure. Down in Egypt, things don't go well, and he passes that test by coming back to the land. And then there's also a crisis that comes through success, a test that comes through success. Lots of money, lots of wealth, and yet he goes back to worship. Quite incredible. That's the first crisis that reveals to us the value system of Abraham. He values worship above all else. This worship, this relationship with God, this relationship with Jesus Christ. Brings us to a a second crisis, and this really is the, the heart of the story. We see the crisis of conflict. So both Abraham and Lot have lots of stuff. Um, now, how does Lot get wealthy? Lot gets wealthy by hanging out with Abraham. Uncle Abe has been very good for business. God is blessing Abraham, and because Lot is in proximity with, with Uncle Abraham, he enjoys the blessing as well. Remember in chapter 12 when God calls him, God says, through you, Abraham, all families of the earth will be blessed. Just because Lot is on good terms with Abraham, he enjoys the spillover effects of divine blessing in his life. It's not because Lot was a savvy businessman. It's because Lot hung out with Abraham, who was receiving the blessing of God. And we often enjoy that as well. Your parents raised you a certain way. They were godly. And you enjoy some of the spillover effects of that. However, here's the thing about Lot. Lot's faith seems to be something of a secondhand kind of faith. Uh, Kind of a, 
Pick it up by osmosis. Uncle Abraham, yeah, he's serious about worshiping God, but there's no record of Lot going and worshiping God. Now, we know Lot was a believer. Second Peter says that he was a, a just man. He was justified before God. But his faith is not, has not been tested like Abraham's has. It's not that he's really owned it himself. Oh, such a danger for those of us who were raised in Christian homes. How many of you, just by a show of hands, had Christian parents? Okay, here, here's a real danger for us. Is you just kind of take, this is what mom and dad believe, and I'm just going to sort of accept it. It's easier just to accept that value system, that belief system, rather than thinking through things on my own. And here's what often happens. Christian young person, they go to church, they're homeschooled, they go to Christian school, they're in youth group, and then off they go to college and their faith is challenged for the very first time. And they're like, man, I wasn't ready for this, and boom, out it goes. Or, man, this whole partying thing, this living a sinful lifestyle, that's enjoyable, that's fun, and boom, out it goes. I think in a sense we see Lot, when Lot goes to Sodom, rather than Lot influencing Sodom, Sodom influences Lot. So he's got flocks, herds, tents. He's got a lot of stuff in verse 5. So now here's, here's the problem that comes up in verse 6. The land was not able to bear them, that they might dwell together, for their substance was great, so they could not dwell together. Think about this. You've got a ton of sheep and goats and, and all these things that got to eat pasture, you know, eat green stuff. Um, you're in Palestine. You're in, you're in Israel. There's not tons and tons of pasture space just everywhere. Uh, so you're sort of limited. There's limited resources, but too much sort of depending on those resources, right? Their, their flocks are so big, their blessing, the blessing God has granted to them is so great that they can't sustain it. That's what's going on in verse 6. The land couldn't sustain them. Too much stuff, not enough resources. The irony is the material blessing of God fuels an interpersonal conflict. We've sort of got the kindling stacked. You've put the lighter fluid on it, and the match is just waiting to be, to be struck. And here it is. The match is struck in verse 7. And there was a strife. There was an argument, a a fight, a conflict between the herdsmen of Abram's flocks and the herdsmen of Lot's flocks. There's this group now, not between Lot and Abram. Lot and Abram seem to be on pretty good terms, but their employees go and fight. We know that Abram had several hundred servants who worked for him. It seems reasonable that so did Lot. So we've got several hundred people here who are fighting over resources. You imagine the scene. Here come the herdsmen of of Abram down to the local watering hole and all, you know, hundreds of sheep. And lots of people come over the brink of the hill, and they're like, they're there first. And they're like, hey, guys, it's Monday. It was our turn to come to the watering hole first. Like, it, we had an agreement, and then a fight breaks out, and arguments, and yelling, and maybe a few, a few punches thrown between these, these two groups. It's descending very quick, quickly into something that is quite ugly. We get a statement at the end of verse 7. Do you notice this? And the Canaanite and the Perizzite dwelled then in the land. This is another one of those, I mentioned the Hebrew structure, where it's kind of like the lights are on here. This is an important facet of the story. The Canaanite, the Perizzite dwelled in the land. So sort of on every side, there are other people competing for the same resource. So it's not just Abraham and Lot, but it's the locals. It's the Canaanites, it's the Perizzites. They're hemmed in on either side. We also know this, like later on in Israel's history, remember who's writing Genesis? It's Moses writing it to the people of Israel before they go into the land of Canaan. The, the Canaanites are going to be their enemy. And, and, and so there's sort of a note here that the original audience would have heard Canaanite and thought, okay, hostility. These aren't people who are friends. These are people who are enemies. And they're looking at Abraham's little clan, Abraham's little group, uh, and, and, and maybe they're thinking, man, if there's a fight between Lot and Abram, they're now, they're now vulnerable. It's never a good idea to signal to your enemies that you're not on the same page, right? To be like, there's a fight breaking out in the dugout between the pitching coach and the catcher. Like, that's probably not a good thing for your team. You're probably not doing too well on the field, right, when, when that sort of thing happens. Well, in, in this case, if there's a fight that breaks out between 
Abram and Lot, and they're sort of at war with each other. That says to the Canaanites and the Perizzites, these guys are really weak. Come on and attack us. We'll just put a big sign around us that says, attack us, we're weak. We can't figure out how to get on the same page. Here's the other thing that's going on. I think Abram is genuinely concerned for God's reputation in Canaan. He's going around building altars, worshiping Yahweh, calling on the name of the Lord, which is more than just I'm privately calling on Jehovah, but he's publicly worshiping Jehovah. He's, he's aligned with, with, with God. And the Perizzites look at Abram and Lot, and they say, man, look at the, the worshipers of Jehovah. They're squabbling. They're fighting over pasture land. They're, they're no different than us. There's nothing special about their God. So I think what Abram's, what his motivation is here is he does not want God's name to be defamed because he and Lot can't work out this disagreement. It's an important reminder for us as Christians. When we as Christians become known to the world for being squabbling and fighting just like everybody else, it says to them that we are just like everybody else. It says that we're, we're, we're no different. It reflects poorly on the name of Jesus Christ. Now, let me be clear. There are times when we do have to draw a line and says, here's what the Scripture says, and here's people professing to know Christ who are disagreeing with the Bible. There is a time to stand over things that the Bible clearly declares. Because we be just frank, most of the time when Christians fight, it's not over something that's actually in the Bible. It's over personality. It's over petty things. It's over personalities and which camp are you in on, on these things that do not matter. We invite the scorn of a hostile world when we are marked by the exact same polarization, the exact same partisanship that marks the lost world. I think it's a shameful thing when the world looks at the church and is just like they're just a political arm of some political party just like the rest of us. No, we are to be different. We are to be the conscience of this society. We are to be distinct. We are to be marked by genuine love for one another. So this crisis of conflict is going to reveal what Abraham and Lot each value. Now, something stunning happens in verse 8. When I mentioned earlier, when Abraham was in Egypt and when his faith was sort of put to the test, he's just like, yeah, here's Sarai, she's my sister. And then, oops, that didn't work out too well. He's sort of selfish in the way he handles it, but here he is going to be selfless. And Abram said unto Lot, Let there be no strife, I pray thee, between me and thee, and between my herdmen and thy herdmen, for we be brethren. Now, they're not literally brothers, but we're family. We should be getting along. How beautiful is it for brothers to dwell together in unity, Psalm 133 says. Is not the whole land before thee? Separate thyself, I pray thee, from me. If thou wilt take the left hand, I will go to the right. And if thou depart to the right hand, I will go to the left. We glimpse something in the heart of Abraham. We glimpse something profound about his value system here. Now, understand what's going on here culturally. Abram is the older, wealthier man. Lot's his nephew. Something we need to understand about the Old Testament, the patriarchal society of the Old Testament, is the, the patriarch, the, the older man, would be the one who was honored and esteemed. What should have happened here was Lot should have come and says, Uncle Abraham, I bow before you humbly. There's conflict between me and you, and so I'm going to withdraw. I'm going to go down to the Negev. You have the best. That's what should have happened. Lot should have deferred to Abram. That's what custom would have demanded. That's what honor of, of, of parents and elders would have demanded. And that's not what happens. Lot's not looking to try to defer to Abram. And so Abram eats his humble pie and defers to Lot. Abram could have asserted, said, this is my right. I'm the older man. Lot, get out of here and move away. You're causing conflict. But Abram does not do that. Let there be no strife. And we get that little phrase, I pray thee, both in verse 8 and verse 9. That's a word that is a word of entreaty. It's an odd thing for someone who is greater to entreat someone who is a lesser. 
right? It's, it's really an unusual thing where Abram is saying, I am humbling myself. I am surrendering my rights. I'm surrendering my preferences. I'm not here to assert my personal freedoms, my individual rights, but rather to see what is going to be work for the best for the unity of Abram and Lot before the world. So Abram takes the initiative to resolve conflict. Takes the initiative. And by the way, there's tremendous wisdom. Proverbs 15, soft answer turns away wrath. Grievous words stir up anger. Proverbs 15, 18, 26, 21, all talk about the importance of taking action to resolve conflict. Jesus himself says, agree with thine adversary quickly while you're in the way with him, lest it escalate from there, right? To take the initiative. If there's conflict between you and another brother or you and another sister in Christ, you be the bigger person and take the initiative to resolve that. Back in Egypt, we saw Abram have these manipulative schemes. Here we see Abram being marked by magnanimous sacrifice, big-hearted Abraham, saying, Lot, you take whatever you want because unity, harmony is more important than me getting what is best. Abram's solution is very practical, and it is incredibly generous. It is sacrificial. So verse 9, he says, is not the whole land before thee? Now, this is amazing. Abram's been promised the whole land. God's already told him, I'm giving you the land. It's for you. It's for your seed. He's going to reaffirm that by the end of the chapter. Abram is very confident in God's promises. He says, I'm so confident, I can willingly just open my heart up and let Lot take the pick. So Abram's willing to set aside his own legitimate rank for the good of Lot. He's willing to sacrifice himself for someone who is really the lesser, for someone who is really part of the problem. Doesn't that remind you of someone else? Someone who had all the glory, all the prerogatives of heaven, all the prerogatives of deity. That deity was not something to be grasped after for Jesus. Yet he made himself of no reputation. And yet he took on himself the form of a servant. And yet he was made in the likeness of men. And yet he humbled himself and brought himself to the place of death, even cross to death. Abram is pointing us to Jesus here. In a a small, sort of imperfect human kind of way of, I'm going to surrender myself for the good of someone who doesn't deserve it. Jesus goes all the way to the cross for people who don't deserve it. For sinners like you and me. It's not just a, a battle over resources, but we are rebels against God. We have violated his law. We have defamed his glory. We have broken his commandments. We have no claim, no right on any of his mercy, any of his grace. And he says, I, I give up my life for you. Abram does that in a small way. Jesus does that in a great way. By the way, what's Paul's point in Philippians 2? Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Look not every man on his own things, every man also on the things of others. We're going through this whole pandemic thing. I hear a whole lot of Christians, I demand my rights, and I don't care how my actions affect anybody else. What if we instead had the attitude of, I'm going to step back and think, how do my actions affect other people? How do my actions affect other people in this church? How do my actions result in the unity and the safety of God's people? What if we had that attitude rather than all about me and it's just about me? I understand there's a lot more, a lot of complexities to those questions. But what if that were our starting point? What if that were our posture? Be like Jesus to set aside, yeah, legitimate right for the good of other people. So many applications. But we got Abram's towering faith, what he values, what matters to him. What matters to him is the fame of the name of Yahweh. He's not so concerned about what people think of Abram, but what people think of Abram's God, the, the parasite, the Canaaniter in the land. He says, what matters is what they think about Jehovah. We, we don't want to bring his name into disrepute because of our inability to resolve differences. So the crisis of conflict will reveal what matters. 
Here's what happens in conflict. It's so easy to dig our heels in and be like, I'm right and you're wrong. You know, there's a, there's a way to be wrong about the way you're being right. You can be right in such a way that you just gave up the moral high ground. And sometimes the goal is not to win an argument, but to win a brother. Abram could have gone toe-to-toe with Lot and demanded certain things. He said, no, no, this relationship. And the next chapter, by the way, the relationship is still there. And it's because of Abram's relationship with Lot that Lot's going to be rescued from Sodom. There's going to be major ramifications, major results from Abram willingly maintaining and protecting this relationship. So he leaves it in God's hands. It's, it's, it's incredibly freeing when we're willing to leave our reputation in God's hands. Like, you know what, I, I'm, it's not about me asserting, but I'm, I'm going to leave it in God's hands. I'm going to really actually trust God in a way that's going to count. I'm going to trust God in such a way that I'm going to forgive those who wrong me. I'm going to meet the needs of those who maybe don't deserve me to, to do that. Amazing how that works. So the crisis of conflict. But now we get a crisis of compromise. And now we're going to kind of zoom in on Lot. The camera pans away from Abraham for just a minute. And we get this sort of sidebar with Lot in verse 10. And we get, I want you to notice something. Verse 10, Lot lifted up his eyes. And then verse 14, God says to Abram, lift up now your eyes. This little phrase in Hebrew signals these two sections are parallel. We're invited by Moses to compare and contrast Lot and Abram and how they make their decisions. Now that's, that's just built into the way this is structured. So we're going to see Lot is going to be marked by compromise. He's going to be faced with compromise. And unfortunately, it's going to reveal his value system. So Abram gives Lot the choice, or again, as I mentioned, Lot, rather than saying, Uncle Abram, you take first dibs, even as a nicety, he doesn't even do that. He lifted up his eyes and beheld all the valley of Jordan. He saw that it was well watered everywhere before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. It's like the garden of the Lord. It's like the land of Egypt. So Lot takes a real good look. Now, they're probably, they're at Bethel, they're, they're, they're looking east, so the, the left hand looking either to the north or right hand to the south, and Lot scans the horizon, and like, man, it looks real green over there. So when you're in the desert, if there is a, a river anywhere, you can see it from miles away. I grew up on the, the banks of the Agua Fria River in, uh, in Humboldt, Arizona, and that sounds like a, a grand river, like, man, the Rio Grande, or the, okay, the, the Agua Fria is like that wide and about that deep. But there's water that's coming through there. You can go up on the hills above Humboldt on either side, and you can look down over this desert landscape, and then there is a ribbon of green. Maybe about, I don't know, an eighth of a mile wide, running right down the middle of the valley where the, where the water is. The land like Palestine, the Jordan Valley, uh, and at this time it seems like the Jordan River was even bigger than it is today. Uh, the plain of Jordan down by the Dead Sea, now the Dead Sea is a wasteland. So that's why um, Moses here, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says this is before God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. It used to be way different. The judgment of God changed the climate, the topography of this place. So if you ever go to Israel, you go to the Dead Sea, it is just absolute barren wasteland. It looks like the moon, like if they faked the moon landing, that's probably where they did it, right? So it's, it's this below sea level kind of place. It's this wasteland. But back at this time, it was a well-watered plain. The, 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 the rivers, there's irrigation canals. And Lot's like, man, that's a great place. I've got flocks and herds. We've had this issue with resources. I'm going to go where it's green. I'm going to go where it's good for me. Verse 10, um, we get an ominous parenthetical note. It was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah by chapter 19. God is going to annihilate the cities down there. Lot doesn't know that yet. That's all in the future. And we get a comparison. It was like the Garden of Eden and like Egypt. Think about what those places uh, convey. The Garden of Eden was a place where God's judgment came, and God's people were expelled. Egypt was a place where God's judgment came, and God's people had to leave. It's signaling to us real bad things about the plain of Jordan, about the, the, the valley of Jordan. 
Sodom would later be associated with divine judgment. When we just say the name Sodom, we think fire from heaven, God annihilating very wicked people. You see, things are not as good as they initially seem. Right? We've all heard the phrase, the grass is always greener over the septic tank. Except in my yard, I can't get grass to grow there. I don't know why. But lots looking, man, green grass, this is great. It looks really good. This looks like a good decision. He's making the decision based simply on what he can see. Abraham is going to make a decision based on what he believes, based on the promise of God. Very different rubrics for decision making. Sodom would soon be destroyed. Its natural beauty masked its moral corruption. It was a very wicked place. Right now, for Lot, the judgment's in the future. He's simply thinking about the short-term benefits of moving into Sodom. He's prioritizing, prioritizing his wealth over even his relationships. He's prioritizing opportunity over even integrity. By the way, don't we do the same thing at times? We're faced with a tough decision, and we're simply looking at the bottom line. There is, there, it's nothing wrong with considering finances and decision-making. It's a wise area to consider. We need to look at more than just the bottom line. We need to think about... Our relationship with Jesus and how will our walk with him be affected? How will our family be influenced? So verses 11 and 12, we get the separation that occurs between them. Lot chose for him, and that's how the way it's worded, Lot chose for himself all the plain of Jordan, and Lot journeyed east. Okay, that little phrase, journeyed east, just seems like a geographic note, and on one level it is. But already in Genesis, we've been primed to think about people journeying east, not being associated with good things. God kicks Adam and Eve out of the garden, and what does he do? He stations cherubim on the east side of the Garden of Eden. Cain kills Abel, and then Cain journeys which direction? East. The Tower of Babel, everybody journeys east. So here's kind of the idea in Genesis, and this is not to say moving east is a horrible, bad thing to do, but to say in the book of Genesis, we've been primed to think that Going east is moving further and further away from the Garden of Eden, moving further and further away from the presence of God, moving further and further away from the blessing of God. That's sort of the symbolic meaning that we've been conditioned to think as we go through this book. So Lot is traveling east away from the place of God's blessing, the promised land. He has left the borders of Canaan, and he's gone outside of Canaan. Now, there's some important ramifications to this, important consequences to this. God's promise to Abraham, hey, you're going to have the seed in this land. And Lot's leaving, so it's sort of taking off the table the, 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 the fact that Lot may be the one that God fulfills that promise through. I think Abram at this point has thought of Lot as an adopted son. At this point, Lot has left the land. God's way of fulfilling the promise to Abram is going to come from somewhere else. So Lot has offered a, is offered a place in the promised land. Abram invites him to stick it out with him. But instead, he goes to the very edge of Sodom. Look at verse 12. So Abram dwelled in the land of Canaan. That's really important. Abram's going to stay in the place of promise where God has called him to be. And Lot dwelled in the cities of the plain and pitched his tent toward Sodom. He's coming right up on the edge of Sodom. Now, this is going to lead to disaster, this compromise. You're like, hey, there's nothing inherently sinful about Lot wanting to go where it's good for his business. Okay, there's nothing wrong with that. But verse 13, the men of Sodom were wicked and sinners before the Lord exceedingly. The point here is these guys were, uh, these were not ordinary sinners. They were above and beyond, very egregious, very in the face of God, shaking a fist before a holy God kind of sinners. By the way, we get that same Hebrew structure that's the neon lights being like important fact to the story. Sodom's a very wicked place. Lot is choosing to associate himself and be close to people who will receive the judgment of God. It's going to be disastrous. Uh, one little phrase I want to draw your attention to in verse 13 they were sinners before the Lord. 
You read through the Old Testament, and you read about the kings in, in, in First, Second Kings, and Chronicles, and they'll say, so-and-so did that which was right in what? The eyes of the Lord. So-and-so did evil in the eyes of the Lord. The measure of what is sin is not what society thinks. It's not what you and I think. It is what God thinks. And all sin is serious because all sin is committed in the presence of a holy God. All sin is committed against the rule of a righteous God. Sometimes we might think, man, like eternal conscious torment seems a little harsh. Unless, of course, sin is committed against an infinite God. If sin is committed against an infinite God, then sin requires an infinite penalty. Which is why if you don't know Jesus as your Savior this morning, I beg you to turn to him. Turn to the one who came down from heaven to rescue us and to redeem us. Because sin is serious. Now, what is it about Sodom that was particularly evil? Sodom is sort of infamous for the sexual perversion, for the homosexuality, for the other kinds of sexual sin that were there. Interestingly, though, Ezekiel 16 and verse 49 says, Here was the sin of Sodom, fullness of bread, and they did not care for the poor. They had lots of wealth, lots of privilege, and they didn't use it to serve other people. That's exactly what Ezekiel 16, 49 says was one of their sins. So not just... Their, their, their sexual perversion, but their lack of love for others. And by the way, we even see that when the angels come to Sodom. When the angels come to, to Abraham, he kills a, a goat, he feeds them, he shows hospitality. When they show up to Sodom, they are not welcomed with hospitality. They're not welcomed with his neighbor love. So one writer put it this way. Lot, when he fancied he was living in paradise, was nearly plunged into the depths of hell. Right? Lot would eventually escape with the skin of his teeth. You see, compromise, spiritual compromise, can lead very quickly to spiritual catastrophe. It's a friendship with the world. I think about, about families. You tell your kids, yeah, God really matters to us. Sunday rolls around. Hey, there's a soccer game today. We're going we're to skip church. You, you see, kids are going to learn not just what you say, but what you do. They're going to learn the values that you say. They'll see what really matters. So yeah, reading the Bible is really important, and the Bible sits on the shelf all week collecting dust. Having a prayer life, son, is very important, but then they never see you praying. You ought to have speech that is pure, and then they hear you stub your toe and let loose a string of expletives. Those little compromises teach the next generation, and we see Lot's family, his own daughters. It just ends in just the most perverse tragedy you can imagine. We'll get to that later on. But we'll finish out with this. There is a crisis of confidence so Lot's faith, his values revealed in this, this crisis of commitment. What, what, is he committed to wealth or is he committed to worship? And he comes out, worship, more important than wealth. Conflict. He, he says through that one that, that it's harmony with my, with my nephew is more important than me getting my own way. I trust God. I don't have to assert myself or scheme or lie. This crisis of, confident, of compromise, we see Lot choosing to compromise with the world rather than staying with Abram. But verse 14 gives us the other side of the coin, and we see Abram facing a crisis of confidence. And again, he comes out on the right side. God gives him promises, and Abram acts consistently with those promises. Look at verse 14. And the Lord said unto Abram, after that lot was separated from him, lift up now thine eyes and look. Notice exact same language, lift up your eyes and look. Lot lifted up his eyes and looked and made a decision based on sight. Now God says, Abram, now that you've made this incredible sacrificial decision based on faith, Lift up your eyes and look from the, the place where thou art. So near Bethel, there is a mountain that is about 3,000 feet above sea level that gives a, a wide-ranging vista of the, the land of Israel. You can look all the way to the Jordan, of, Jordan Valley. You can see all the way to the north to Mount Hermon. You can look out and even see the Mediterranean. 
So here's Abram standing on this mountain, and God says, don't just look left or right. That's what Lot, Lot limited his view, just looking east. God says to Abram, look, all four points of the compass. You, you gave up this little thing. I'm going to give you something so much greater. Kind of like Jesus saying, you lose your life, but you will gain it, right? You'll get eternal life. He says, look, north, south, east, west. For all the land which thou seest, to thee will I give it and to thy seed forever. Up to this point, God had initially said, go to a land that I will show you. And then the next stage of Genesis 12 and verse 7, I'm giving it to you and to your descendants. And now God is saying, it's all the land that you can see, and I'm giving it to your descendants forever. There's an escalation every time the land promise is given. The first time God says, I'm going to, through your seed, all nations will be blessed. Now God says, your descendants are going to be like the dust of the earth. Verse 16, I will make thy seed as the dust of the earth. So that if a man can number the dust of the earth, so shall thy seed also be numbered. You're going to have this innumerable host of people who will look to you as their father. So verses 10 to 13 and verses 14 to 17 stand in parallel. Both begin with lift up your eyes and see. Both end with people leaving and putting their tents somewhere. Abram's going to, in verse 18, put his tent uh, in Hebron and build an altar to God. Lot puts his tent next to Sodom. Parallels things to see a different response. Lot limited his gaze to the east. Abram is called to look to all points of the compass. And this promise of the land is forever. By the way, that points us to eternity. You get to the end of the book. And there's a new heaven and a new earth. Hebrew, the word for earth and the the word for land are the same, Eretz. The fulfillment of the land promise is not just Israel occupying a strip of land along the Mediterranean Sea. The fulfillment of the land promise is one day when Jesus reigns over everything. The the fulfillment of the, the, the promised seed, that never happened in Israel's history. Even when they come out of Egypt, they're a great nation. But Deuteronomy, God tells the the people, he says, I didn't pick you because you're the biggest. You're not the biggest. There's other nations that are way bigger. Even today, Israel is one of the smaller countries in the Middle East. The Jewish people have never been as the dust of the earth. We do find out in Galatians that everyone who believes is a child of Abraham. Everyone who puts their faith and trust in Jesus inherits the Abrahamic promise. So we sing that, that silly song, Father Abraham had many sons. Many sons had Father Abraham. And I'm one of them and so are you, right? Uh, we get to the end of the story in Revelation, and there's a multitude which no man can number. Language similar to what we have here, Revelation 7. Uh, a multitude no one can number, not just from Israel, but from all nations, people who believe in Jesus. So this only is fulfilled. This only makes sense, not in Israel's history. This never happened in Israel's history. This makes sense only through Jesus Christ, through his work on the cross. Here's one of the amazing things. When you start reading the Old Testament, all, of the, you know, the, all roads lead to Rome. All of these threads lead to the cross. And you can't tell the story of the Bible without the cross, without the finished work of Jesus, making all of these promises actually mean something. He is the yes and amen to every promise of God. So God promises descendants to him. God promises a land to him. Now, notice the crisis of faith. That's a pretty elaborate promise. Think about what Abraham has at this point. He owns a tent, and he does not own a single square inch of, of, of Canaan. He doesn't. He, doesn't have not, he has no legal ownership of any of the land whatsoever. He's one guy. He's surrounded by Canaanites. He's got no kids, and God's like, hey, your descendants are going to be like the dust of the earth, uncountable. Later on, he'll say they'll be like the stars of heaven. That's pretty crazy to believe. Right, that's nuts. That's not one of those humanly like, oh, yeah, that makes sense. God is calling Abraham to go out on a limb of faith. Only this limb is a very strongly supported limb. It is supported by the promise of God. 
He's got a decision. Am I going to trust God? I'm going to be confident in his promises? Or am I not? There's a crisis of confidence. I believe Jimmy Carter used that phrase. He gave a speech in 1979, the, the Malays speech. There's a crisis of confidence in this country. Here there's a crisis of confidence, but it's not self-confidence, confidence in God. Abram, are you going to trust the promises of God? Now look at how he answers that. Verse 17, God says, Arise, walk through the land and the length of it. Okay, so the Hebrew form here is sort of walk about, traverse it back and forth, called a hip pile. Walk through the land and the length of it and in the breadth of it, for I will give it unto the Abraham, I want you to go symbolically claim the land. So you're going to, everything you look on and everything you walk on is going to be yours. So Abram's going to walk the land, go north to south, east to west, and claim it symbolically for him and for his descendants. And notice what he does in verse 18. Abram removed his tent and came and dwelt in the plain of Mamre. That's the, tra- that, the translation of the conjunction then. God says, go move and conquer the land symbolically, and Abram gets up and he starts traveling, and he does precisely that. His actions in verse 18 are Abram saying, yes, God, I trust you. I have confidence in your purpose. I have confidence in your promise. I believe what you say enough to do what you tell me to do. He comes out with this amazing declaration of his confidence in the promises of God, and he builds an altar to the Lord. The result of this is worship. I love how this story is bracketed. Verse 4 and verse 18 begins and ends with Abram building an altar and worshiping. Worship reveals what we value, and we value what we worship. Abram says, more than anything, I value and I treasure God. He is my treasure. In fact, in Genesis 15, verse 1, God says to him, I am thy shield and thy exceeding great reward. God's not just the rewarder, he himself is the reward. He is the treasure of our hearts. He is the God who is so glorious he can satisfy the deepest longing of our soul. He's a God who satisfies the deepest longings of his people. In fact, it glorifies God when that happens. And I I love the phrase from John Piper, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. We find all of my satisfaction is in Jesus that says, guys, look at Jesus. He's so glorious. I don't need a Lamborghini to be satisfied. I don't need everything to be going well in my life to be satisfied. I don't need peace and comfort to be satisfied because I have Jesus, and you can take the world, but give me Jesus. I'd rather have Jesus than silver or gold. He's the the high king of heaven that my treasure thou art. And this is what has armed Christians through history to face persecution, to lose their lives, to lose their jobs, to lose everything because they're like, hey, you can't touch what really matters to me. It's Jesus. This is what arms Christians to go through times of suffering and heartache and to say, I'm going to rejoice that I'm counted worthy to suffer with Jesus, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being made conformable to his death. So when we go through heartache, when we go through difficulty, when we go through pain, when we go through loss, The thing that we treasure shines out. It's Jesus. Abram values God above everything. In the crisis of commitment, he values God above his wealth. He valued God above controlling the situation and the conflict that comes up. He says, I don't need the land, I need God. He valued God above comfort. He valued God's promise above everything else. So like Abraham, may we learn to treasure God. Because I believe with all my heart, God reserves his best gifts for those who make him their greatest treasure. Father, may we treasure you. May we look forward to the day that we stand with you in your presence. 